I was told, I was a young Dennis the Menace, and if those of you I'm at an age where Dennis the Menace, I, um, I can't <laughs> understand where you're coming from. So I was the um, the the one who always was finding something to get into, oh. <laughs> and be it good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, so I was the experimenter. So um, and often that uh, caused problems, but at the same time. It was me trying to find out who I was as well. about this conversation this is a, a friend a partner an uncle a de- let me not do all that to you um, <laughs> that's fine you know the ultimate um dr tarot bird or should i say pastor tarot bird i'm pastor i'm professor i'm <laughs> a, doctor, a lot more huh? my name is tarot so you got that right that's so tarot bird the reason I'm super excited about this, so I was supposed to do this interview a long time ago, but I think I needed to be prepared to do this interview because I want to dive deep into what your process looked like because what I identified the moment I met your daughter, Tara, I when she told me about you and where you where you're a professor at, every time I ever think of Palm Beach Atlantic mm-hmm. brand, I automatically think of you. Hmm. It's crazy for years. Wow. I, and I didn't know who you were, but I, I've been part of a event that was held there and you were the black brother that was there. Okay. And I was like okay. connection. But then I started processing a little bit more. And I met when I met with your cousin a couple of weeks ago and I really started thinking about it. Like you have to hustle differently. Hmm to become a doctor, a professor, Dr. Bird, a professor at Palm Beach Atlantic mm. University. that That's not normal. Mm. <laughs> or is it normal? Is there a multiple mm. African-American black doctorate? I don't know the proper term to use. Yeah, and yeah. you're faci- at, at Palm Beach Atlantic? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, Beethoven, thank you for having me on your show. I've... I've admired the work you've done and been doing, and I'm really happy to be a part of the team, so to speak. Um, Yeah, being a professor anywhere and being um, of a minority or a marginalized group is rare. I think African-Americans represent about 2 to 3% in higher academia in the, at the PhD level. So it is, it is uh, uh, an interesting process for us to be able to get there. So I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not rare, but I am unique because. Nope. No, I'm not going to do that with you today. (laughs) Nope. Nope. So let's go out, but you are definitely rare, rare, but I want to, I want to go from the beginning because like I said, my inspiration every time I think of who you are and what you represent, there, there's definitely something different to get to this capacity. 
It's like I, like I was talking to Terry the other day. I was like, real recognize, real. I don't have to say a lot. I don't have to say a lot to you. You don't have to say a lot to me. But we understand it was a process mm-hmm. of how we got mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I believe that's where I want to get into. Sorry, that's what I want to get to. Is what does that process look like for you? Mm. Give some people some advice, some tips on how to get there. So, st- raised in Ohio in a small town, like give me a, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Ohio uh, is where I was raised. My parents are from Alabama, but of course, they migrated to Ohio like many people looking for jobs during the 50s. Um, but I was actually born in Hamilton, Ohio, which is a little small town right next to a little, a smaller place called Oxford, Ohio, which was a college town. So I actually grew up in a college community. And I think in some ways that shaped me, although there was a great deal of segregation between the, the university and the, the town itself. So I grew up in an atmosphere that was kind of cosmopolitan, but in a very unique way. It was a semi-rural town of about 16,000 people in the town. Uh, but that's kind of the way that I grew up. I grew up in a small semi-rural town in the Midwest. So growing up in Ohio, I, I, I believe, um, growing up in your town that you grew up in, mom and dad in the house, and then you had a, a death in the process. Mm, yeah. So. Yeah. <clears throat> Actually, when my parents moved here, I... Um, my father actually died in an automobile accident when I was uh, six years old. The interesting thing is he had two sets of twins. So I have a twin brother, Daryl, and twin sisters, Karen and Sharon, wow. and one older brother, Anthony. So, And we're all a year apart. But my father died um, when I was six. My sisters were five, and my brother was older brother was seven. He died in an automobile accident, uh, and it was a drunk driving thing. He was out with his boys, and um, they got drunk, and the driver ran into a tree. Um, My father was sitting in the front passenger side. The tree hit the car. Back in those days, uh, for crushed lungs, they could not do much, and that's what he had. He had crushed lungs. He died, which left my mother— as a single mother with five children, mm. four of which are still in diapers, barely out of diapers. Uh, and um, and that was the kind of the territory in which we were growing up in. Thankfully, we had relatives, uncles and aunts, who were able to take us in. But it was a real shock to my mother's system she battled with nervous breakdowns uh, during the early part of that event. I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah, which required her being unable to take care of her kids together. So we were separated to different households to relatives for uh, often two and three years at a time. And so while we are a a pretty close, tight-knit family— as brothers and sisters, we did not often grow up together as a whole that was maintained until our teenage years. So. 
you do you believe that dynamic affected you guys earlier on into oh, yeah. adulthood? Absolutely. Um Absolutely. I think it affected uh, all of us in unique ways. Um, my two brothers, Daryl, my twin, actually spent a year, maybe a year and a half in Alabama with an uncle there. So we did not even do our fifth grade together as twins. We were separated. Uh, when uh, he came back, my mother had an episode and my oldest brother and my twin brother stayed with one uncle and I stayed with another uncle and his family. So, and my sister stayed with another uncle and that family. So um, I think that it produced in me this kind of sense of isolation, but also this, this kind of independentness of mind that I always felt different and sometimes I think that may have played a positive role because it helped me to be able to not be afraid to try new and different things, even if I had to do it alone. So you're feeling different. Was it different from your other siblings? Was it different from the people that you were staying with? Like, where does that indifference come yeah, from? Yeah, yeah. I think it came from, one, being Placed in a community, even though I knew my relatives loved me, I still was not their biological birth son. Um, uh, then also this idea of your mother's health is you're constantly having to carry that and there's nothing you can do about it. And so you had to fight to be able to survive. It was like a survival at a young age and then not being really with your brothers and sisters, that too kind of created a, a different kind of world for me as well. I remember growing up and wanting to play a junior high basketball, but my aunt at the time who was keeping me said, no, I think I'm afraid you'll get hurt and your mother's in the hospital and, and, and I don't know what I would do. And it, it kind of broke my heart because I love basketball. And I was so gratified that my freshman year, when I had moved back home with mom, I was able to play basketball and I went out for the basketball team and made it. Okay. Okay. You know? <laughs> so, so do you believe the identity of who you were or what you were going through, you first were defending that identity from your peers, your cousins, your because your mom is ill. Mm -hmm. Your mom's going through mm -hmm. different things. Um, your father passing away. You carry a lot of that identity oh. with you, even amongst your family. Yeah, and it's trying to find an identity. The struggle of who am I when you know I know that that's my uncle, that's my aunt, that's not my mother. My mother is ill. So there's this idea of being unique in this situation. And then um, there's also this desire to want to know who I am and therefore also to experience. I was, the, I was a young dentist to menace. And if those of you, I'm at an age where dentist to menace. I, I, I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> so I was the, um, the, the one who always was finding something to get into. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and be it good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, so I was the experimenter. So, um, and often that uh, caused problems, but at the same time, it was me trying to find out who I was as well. How did the introverted spirit came into this? Like where you just was, 
you know, you wanted to be to yourself. And, mm-hmm. you know, how, how did all that come about? In because, you know, when you grow up without of a father, um, and even though you have uncles, and you grow up with a mother who's ill, um, and then you have to, there is a trust level. And I think that for me, uh, I was very hesitant uh, to trust because uh, I've already been moved from house to house. I stayed with one uncle and their family. I ended up going to another uncle and their family. And so it's, it's a trust. Who can I trust because I don't know where I'm going to end up? And it impacted the way I did school, my education. Um, I was popular, but I was also... Um, I think that I did never lived up to my fulfill, my potential at a young age. It wasn't until later on that I began more committed toward my my so education. Do you um, believe the the mishap, you know, the mishap from your father also took away from the identity of knowing who you are as a man even though you had your uncles mm-hmm. around but you couldn't really emulate what your father, like, did you ever wanted to be like your father or you didn't even know what that was? No, I didn't know what that was. And most of the things that I heard about my father were not always positive. So, um, you didn't want to even be like, well, no, I mean, other than to look like him, he was a very good, we were, he was better looking than all of his kids. So but, you basically yeah, saying yeah, you caught that yeah, part. Yeah, Go ahead. Dr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he was a very uh, handsome man. Uh, but he was also like many men of that age, um, who never really found himself. And therefore, Mm. the street life had him, alcoholism, those kind of things, abusive to my mother, those kinds of things were a part of of who he was. The identity. Yeah, that that he struggled with. He had moved uh, from Alabama to be able to marry my mother, but he had a a very difficult time finding uh, a job and, and staying on a job for any length of time. And I think he, that, you know, was kind of the rebellion of his life that, and so he, he tried to pacify it with, with alcohol or whatever, um, uh, in order to, to maintain any kind of, of existence. So, yeah, so all of that kind of shaped my early life, my early life. So you also said you reconnected back with your mother mm-hmm. freshman year. Mm-hmm. Was it just you or all the all siblings? Of us, we were able to come together. My brothers and sisters, mother was able to maintain uh, a fairly uh balanced life. Mental health was a challenge for her because of her nervous breakdowns, but she was determined to bring her kids together. In fact, there was at one time a discussion about putting us in a foster home and mom rebelled and said, please, whatever you do, don't separate my kids from my, you know, into a foster homes. They, you know, she said, brothers and sisters, her own siblings, please take take them in. So the joy of her life was being able to finally be able to have her children together under one roof. 
How, how was that feeling when you first, if you could remember, wow. how that feeling was wow. when you first all came together? Oh, wow. It was great. I mean, it was it was celebration time for us. Um, and I must say, I admire my mother. If I, if I say I have a role model, it's her uh, because she was determined to do whatever she could to bring her family together under one roof. Uh, she ended up working for the university in the in the uh, the food service, uh, cafeteria worker, and which which I am fond of cafeteria workers at any school, <laughs> yeah, that's be, be, be it elementary, high school, or college. I go to the cafeteria, <laughs> and, and I salute yeah. I salute cafeteria workers. Um, and she also was a domestic and, you know, she worked for a woman. I remember uh, vividly she worked for a woman named Mrs. Jones. She would clean her house, take care of her kids. And sometimes, of course, she would leave her five kids to go take care of Miss Jones's kids, you know, to make an extra, um, extra buck to take care of us. And I remember in college that one day mom uh, when I had when I was graduating with a master's degree, and Mrs. Jones' son was graduating with a bachelor's degree, and Mom was I remember her saying I had to tell Miss Jones that I could not attend her son's graduation because I was attending my son's graduation, and I will not miss my son's graduation for the world. So it was just interesting that the woman, but she had literally raised her son, Mrs. Jones' son. Uh, and they thought of her like another mother. Absolutely. And yet, and her own son was achieving at a rate that she could be proud of as well. So was education important in the house around high school? You know, was it, was education important for your mom or anyone else that influenced you? For my mom, it was, but one of the regrets my mother had was that she could not go to college. Mom really wanted to be a teacher. That was her heart's desire. But uh, because of the children, having children, then suffering uh, with uh, nervous breakdowns, the death of a, of a young uh, husband, she never did. But she was um, an uh, adult uh, student, re a reader. She would read, and above all, read the Bible daily. Uh, but one of the houses, my uncle, one of the houses I stayed in, my aunt was a librarian. So uh, so she was always introducing me to books as well. So uh, I, was, I was always around people who understood the value of education. So in the midst of when you guys all moved back into your mother's home, was there still influence from your uncles and aunts still after you guys moved back in? Well, there was influence. Um, there was support. Support. Mm -hmm. uh, because my mother needed that. Uh, and for us, there were often hard work because they would have us go out into their gardens and, <laughs> and pick the beans and the greens and the whatever. And I think I, I learned gardening as a result of being around my uncles. Uh, so yeah, there was, there was influence and there was support. Yeah. So when did you realize that you wanted to go into college? Like what well, the influence of college and education, it started with your mom. Was she the one that said, hey, you guys all need to go to college or was it? 
No, no. At, at the at that time when I was growing up, what mom said is you all need to get a job. Absolutely. <laughs> you got to work. Uh, and so getting a job working was the primary thing. For me, college was not really sparked until I sensed a call to preach. And so uh, at 17, I uh, really began to have this unction uh, this this drive to speak the word of God to preach. How? Uh, well, I, it, it a lot of it. I think the influence of my mother, who was a very devout uh, Christian, but uh, and my mother used to always say that uh, my father he did not accept his call, and it fell on me because she said there was always this spiritual inquisiveness about me and even though i could be i could be a handful <laughs> to handle i understand but but in me there was always this hunger for for god and this thirst for god and uh i had dreams and visions of of preaching at what uh, age at, this was 16 15 15, 16, 7. It wasn't until 17 that I finally just said yes. I had been struggling. And, and part of it was I was running. And so sometimes I was running, doing some things that I knew were not right. godly things. I was, I was in the streets pretty heavy uh, as a teenager. And so, so before, sorry to cut you off. And no, I do that no, a lot. So you're going to have to work with me. But I think because my mind is just visualizing the whole thing. So before your calling, when you were 16, 17, what was the lifestyle like in your community, in your family, and activity with your brothers oh. and sisters? Because you guys just came back. How was that for you? Yeah, but we were all doing our thing. So it's not, you know, but come on, I grew up in the 70s. So it was Earth, Wind, and Fire. Okay, here we go. New Birth. It was the OJs. It was the Four Tops. It was, it was, and it was Jimi Hendrix. It was, you know, and I was coming into all of it. But there also was like a nickname they gave you. Well, um, in that process. Well, yeah, they did. They gave me a lot of nicknames. <laughs> right. Because of your love of music. Because of, yeah, they love that. That's right. I mean, um, all of that was part of me kind of trying to find myself, but also running from myself. And so I experimented in a lot of with the, the drugs and things like that as a teenager that I was doing things that a lot of adults were. But the doing. access to it in, in that community in Ohio and all. Oh, because that it, was a college, it was a college town. And so as a college town, you had all kind of involvement of people doing a little of everything. And it was easy to find trouble <laughs> if you were looking for it. So, um, and so... I was the last person that people thought would ever be a preacher. Wow. And I can name uh, the names of people who were my buddies who are no longer with us and because of the, the lifestyles lifestyle. that they were living. And this is as a young, and I tried my best when I came out to get them to see the light that I had saw that I would. And what do you uh, believe that light was? Was it just the dreams? I, the what Well, was, no, I think it was, I, the first thing that I started doing when I 
really became hungry for the gospel is I started reading the book of Proverbs. And the book Why? of Pro- Proverbs, because it was the wisdom. It's Solomon always intrigued me. The wisest man that ever lived. Wisest man that ever lived. But when you look at Solomon's life, he's doing all these unwise things. He has 700 wives and 300 maids to serve You don't him. recommend 700 you, well, wives? No, I don't. <laughs> sure. uh, I'm, no. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who could handle seven? But anyway... <laughs> Uh, but th- those things that he was doing, he, but he was wise. The Bible talked about there was none wiser than Solomon. And I began to read wisdom literature. And, and, and you say, why? It began to make sense. It's like what he's mm. saying makes sense. Oh, yeah, it is that when you seek after wisdom, there are certain things you shouldn't do. You ought to not love folly, but you ought to seek instruction. You ought to all these different kinds of things that I was reading from the from the Proverbs that began to make sense to me. Um, do you believe that the identity that you were looking and the guidance you were looking for from your dad, Proverbs kind of gave you that? I believe that Proverbs helped me gave me a context for understanding life, the, the fullness of life, that there are questions that I had, and I finally found a place to go to get answers. And I remember my mother saying, wow, you know, you're reading the Bible every day. It's, and the thing is, she reads the Bible daily too, but I was reading day and night. I was in, the, at school, they were teasing me my junior year in high school, calling me a Jesus freak because I had the word of God. So I was being persecuted for, they're like, oh, he's, it's not real. It's not real. I mean, and, and uh, but I, I, I fell in love with the word of God. I fell in love with Jesus at a young age um, because I had done the stuff. 14, 15, 16, I was living like some 18, 19, and 20 year olds. So by the time I had finished, they were just starting. So my right. <laughs> you was already an adult. I was all right. I, was yeah, like, I, I did my time I've here, been, guys. That's right. I'm ready to I've go. I've done that. Why on. are you all telling me you ought to get this? <laughs> I've been there, brother. Right. You know, and so. Um, but the thing is, um, I had some catching up to do because I, I played through high school and didn't get much guidance from my guidance counselor. He was saying, oh, just find a menial job. You know, you're not really cut out for college, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I knew I had some catching up to do. And so when graduation time came, my twin brother, I did not get to graduate with him. He graduated alone. There was only one bird on the right. on the list that was walking across the stage. I still had credits to make up for. So I had to go to night school uh, in order to take classes to be able to get my high school diploma. So how embarrassing is it to not be able to, to not be able to, to march with your twin brother? I know the feeling. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we're yeah, so yeah, much similar. Yeah. So, but in night school, uh, there was a counselor who was my teacher. Her name was Mrs. McIntyre and she would work with me. And one day she just stopped and she looked at me and I said, what's wrong? She said, you are so smart. She said, you are college material. She said, would you mind if I wrote a letter to the university 
to tell them that they ought to consider giving you a scholarship to go to college. Wow. And I'm like, wait, I hadn't got, I haven't finished high school. She said, Oh, you're going to finish this. That's nothing. She said, but I want to let them know that this, you are a person of high potential and I see it. And I don't know why uh, others have not observed that in you. What, what do you believe that did to you when she, when she told oh, you that? It, yeah, well, first of all, I was shocked. Like, are you really yeah, me? This me? Guy? Right, right. Well, but about that same time, um, I was also applying for a Bible college and I got accepted into a Bible college. But and, if you, so you knew you wanted to go to college around junior year when you shift, oh, but well, you wanted to go my into senior ministry. Year, my, yeah, around, right. That's right. So the time I was graduating, which I was at the age where I was, I need to do something. And I knew that ministry is where I needed to go, but I didn't have, haven't completed my high school diploma, but I was already thinking like, you know, I need to complete my diploma so that I can go into Bible college. But she was saying, wait, I want you to go consider the university, mm-hmm. which is a little bit more, uh, at, you know, arts and sciences, liberal arts, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, scholarship. <laughs> Another level. Another, but did your brothers, did your older siblings and even your twin go off to college? No. My twin took, he did go to college for a while, but he got a job at a steel mill making great money, good money, and decided that that's the path he was going to go on. He was going to work at a steel mill. Uh, my other brother also found a factory job, and uh, I became, actually, it was the first in my family to graduate from college. Wow. The high school. It started off, the started first off, started off there. That's right. That's right. So, but the, the, the thing was, is that when I went to Bible college, Cincinnati Bible College and Seminary, um, uh, I did so well. I was, it was nothing but A's. And I remember taking a New Testament class and some of my other friends who were going to school with me at the time, uh, they laughed because, uh, I didn't have to take the final exam in the New Testament class because only two students had scored so high on their test throughout the whole semester that they didn't even have to take a final. And when he called out my name in class and some of my other brothers were with me, they're going, Bird, I can't. Ain't no way. You know, and they started laughing and said, yeah, we know he's smart, you know. But I was able to do that, finish Bible college, you know. But um, I did go to the university um, and I started out as an elementary education uh, major. Did you want to go into teaching because of your mom? I, I think so. I think I did at first. I, 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 I do. And I just, I, I thought teaching was what I wanted to do. Uh, but I didn't realize that teaching children is not what I wanted to do. <laughs> right. I'm not, I was not cut out for elementary education. So when I went as an elementary education major, um, they had something called a student observation period that you would go for a week or two and visit local schools. Well, they sent me to the worst. I'm not kidding. I'm not Beethoven. They sent me to an urban school, the worst school. You weren't ready for that. <laughs> and, 
I can only and imagine. That, uh, and so the first week I was there, <laughs> I came back to the university and went and said, I want to change my major right from, now. That's right, right now from, from elementary education to philosophy. And so ASAP. I changed. So I changed and I ended up getting a philosophy degree, a bachelor of philosophy uh, was my first university. Degree. So I want to touch on one point also. Your um, Was your guidance counselor the only one that discouraged you from the education piece? Like, hey, don't even worry about this school thing. This is not for you. Or was that a thing growing I up? Think, I think growing up, you know, you really weren't in my community. Um, people just Worked job it wasn't for wasn't you. For college was not something, and so for me to even pursue it, it was it was somewhat unique. But at twenty, at age twenty two, by the time I was twenty two, I was very active in my church. My pastor looked at me and said, "You're going to be the next pastor of this church," and I'm thinking, uh, "I'm." <laughs> I I haven't been told that, and he said he didn't tell me that. That's right. He said it will happen, um, and that end of that year, he resigned to go plant a church in a neighboring uh, town, and the congregation met and said, "We want you to become our be our pastor." At the age twenty two. At twenty two. Now, at that age twenty two, were you working already? Were I, you? I was. I just finished my Bible. My my Bible college. <laughs> So I was just coming out Bible college. I had been married. I got married at 20. So I was just married. With a wonderful woman. Just want to be right. very clear. Just want to add on to that. All right. Just married. Uh, had a child. Um, life. And life was happening fast. And so, and then to to become pastor of my home church, it was like a, a consensus. The whole church said, yes, we want him to pastor us. And I ended up pastoring my home church. How, even just getting all that information, what did you go back home and tell your your new wife about what the, all this? I'm, we're gonna be. I'm gonna be a pastor of a new <laughs> church. Like, how was that? Like uh, that? That? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm not sure she ever <laughs> thought that she would be married to a pastor. That was the first thing. Um, and so we had some long talks about, uh, uh, the direction that my life was going in. Um, and you know, I told her just be you. And I think that as long as she understood that she could just be herself, that there was no expectations because, and we became, it became a wonderful, uh, experience for both of us. Uh, she was a different kind of first lady, non-traditional. She didn't wear the big hats that a lot right. of the black churches do. She didn't do any of that. She was fun-loving and playful with the kids, and she enjoyed. And so our church, actually, we ended up becoming one of the most popular uh, churches in the small town. I ended up uh, becoming a campus minister for the university. So we had a wonderful student ministry that's college students were coming over to my church. Professors were coming over to the church. And so it was a beautiful thing we had. And Why? Even, Why do you think that was happening? Because I was young. They were attracted. They saw somebody. And then I was also attending university. At that time, I had already accepted a 
full ride to do a master's degree. I had a full uh, academic scholarship to do a master in religion. The same kid the, that was not supposed to same, go to college. Right, right, right. I had uh, so I had finished uh, a biblical studies degree at a Bible college. I had finished, I had just finished a philosophy degree at the university. And after I finished my philosophy degree, uh, I applied for the school of religion and got a full paid academic scholarship for my master's degree. And so then the university, they were looking for a campus minister and said, would you consider being uh, working as a campus minister? I guess I'm pastoring uh, a church. I guess I would be. And it turned out to work out just fine. So in, in your whole um, process of doing all this, when did fear ever hit in that process? <laughs> I didn't have time to be afraid. I had no time to be afraid. I had no time to be afraid. Because you have a newborn, yeah. newly married, new school. All these things yeah. were new. And yeah. your thing was you had to do what you had to do to get to where yeah, you have to go. Yeah, man. I was I was rolling. I was just, you know, it was it it was life. Life was was uh so much going on. Um and then I I in the middle of my um, at the end of my master's degree, my uh, professor advisor, um, he came to me um, and said, we would like to um, write a recommendation for you to go to Princeton. Uh, because That's it, just because, Princeton. Well, yeah, yeah, because uh, there is a guy named Albert Rabito who is teaching uh, Catholic history and some other historical areas, but we think you would be perfect to work alongside him. Well, um, and he told him about me and so forth. And, but about that time, um, I was getting, my wife was having her second child and that was Tara. She was, uh, I've heard uh, of her. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, um, and so I was making a decision. I was thinking, where am I going? Because I wanted to get a divinity degree. I had, I had a Bible college degree and I had a religion degree, but I wanted a divinity degree. Oh, so there's different levels. There's different levels of, of ministry and theology and What's the divinity academics. Degree? Divinity is what, what pastors, it's the terminal degree for if you want to be a pastor, that's the degree that you want to go after uh, as, a, as a minister. The, the highest level, um, even though there are what they they have now, Doctor of Ministries degree, degree but for a pastor, a MDiv would be the degree to have. And so I I was going to go. I got letters to go to Colgate, Rochester in New York. And um, uh, my wife and I, we traveled there. But when we were there, uh, they had like 15, 20 inches of snow the week we were visiting there where I was having to make up my mind about whether or not <laughs> that, that I want to spend the next three years in, in, in New York and <laughs> Rochester, New York. Um, and I said, no. So I ended up coming back and in Dayton, Ohio, there is a school called United Theological Seminary. And I decided that I would enroll there and I could commute so I could still pastor uh, and go to school. But by that time, I had accepted another position at another church in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so I accepted a church in Cincinnati, Ohio, 
and I commuted back and forth uh, to Dayton, Ohio, to finish a Master of Divinity degree. What was the t- like the travel distance? Uh, to Dayton, about an hour, wow. hour and twenty minutes, maybe. Yeah. How was your mother through this whole thing? My mother was still in the first place city in Oxford, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, she was so proud of me. Uh, I think all of my family was very proud of me because things had, had really worked out very well. Um, the, the challenge for me is I became a workaholic in ministry. And the church that I went to in uh, uh, Cincinnati became one of the leading churches in that area, Baptist churches in that area. But we were so active in the community things. I was an activist in the community. I had actually followed a guy who had worked with Operation Breadbasket and Jesse Jackson. And I followed uh, his ministry. Uh, His name was Dr. E.O. Thomas. And there's a guy named Dr. or Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth who worked with Dr. King and brought Dr. King to Birmingham, Alabama. And he had moved to Cincinnati and was passing a church there. I think I, Angela Shuttlesworth. That's right. It's, wow. It's that's her, crazy. Right. Her, her father. Her, her father, grandfather. Her, her grand, her father. Well, Angela, right. Her, her grandfather, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, crazy Angela. how all that's connected. Well, her, he became a mentor to me because when I came to Cincinnati, he was one of the first pastors to call and welcome me as a new pastor to the city. And so he mentored me. And so, um, in fact, I've had him to come and speak at Palm Beach Atlantic a couple of times before. He's dead now, but when he was alive, he came to the campus. I brought brought him here. So I was working and, you know, and then I wasn't satisfied. I wanted to work toward my PhD and because I thought that eventually – Uh, I may be a full-time professor, but uh, the University of Cincinnati had already asked me to come on to do some teaching for them. And uh, so I ended up uh, completing a PhD at Union Institute and University where I did a a interdisciplinary interdisciplinary degree in uh, philosophy, theology, and sociology. So um, that's kind of... And then when I finished that, uh, I was recruited to Palm Beach Atlantic University. <laughs> so, but even before you got there, were you already, do you believe now you were creating a new identity for the male, the bird man and the, and the, you know, cause your father had an identity. You could not mimic his identity because of his passing. Now yeah. there was a new identity of what a bird male looks like. Yeah, well, I don't even, you know, I don't necessarily look at it as a bird male because I think even in my on my uncle's side, the Browns, that my mother was her main name was Brown, and she had all brothers. She had she had seven brothers, and she was the only daughter. So, wow. yeah, so. Um, there were a lot of men in in that family and some really good, decent guys. But I think that if anything, I became kind of a, a, a model for a lot of people in that small town that I grew up in. 
because when I got married, there weren't <laughs> young people weren't even getting married. <laughs> you know, that wasn't married. By the way, a, a wonderful woman. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, and so I ended up uh, eventually uh, performing, officiating weddings throughout the city. I was just, every You're, time you looked yeah. around, I was- You married. had another one. Another, another marriage, another marriage. And it became chic, you know, to be able to, to get married again. So, um, and even now when I go back to visit, I'm kind of like the local hero, you know, to some degree. Uh, and um, I, I, you know, I love my family. I, they, they love me and respect the work I'm doing, but I'm very humbled by, you know, what God has done in, in my life. But, and, but even when you were so in the church and ministry, your leadership, what does it take to actually lead in the capacity you are leading in? Well, the first thing that I would say you have to do is have a love for people. <laughs> the worst thing that someone who says, quote unquote, I'm a pastor is be a pastor who does not love people. You cannot hate or despise people and be an effective pastor. So I love people. I love people. I want what's best for people. The other thing is there has to be a sense of humility where you've got to understand that you put on your pants the same way everybody else puts their pants on. And... um uh, whatever you have, whatever you know, is because somebody came before you and that you're simply standing on the shoulders and the lift that you got, hopefully you can give somebody else a lift as well. So I've never thought more highly of myself. So that has kept me because I know what it's like to be at the bottom. <laughs> so, you know, I, I there is no way that I... I can say that I'm different. I, I had not it been for the grace of God, there go I, and I have no, I make no qualms about it. I know I'm only a, a breath <laughs> from being outside of that grace. And so I don't take that for granted. I don't take that. How understanding, of course, your wife had to be in support. Like, how, what kind of support did she have to give you to keep that oh going? Oh, my. I, I give her all the credit for being the mother, sometimes the father. Uh, my educational process, this 12 years of, of education, academics, often meant time away from the family. It meant uh, time that I didn't spend with my daughters. Uh, and, and even though I prided myself on loving and trying to protect and provide for my family, if it had not been for, for her that, you know, she was a constant, she was the rock uh, in, in the home. And so uh, I give her all the credit for, for being the matriarch of of the fa of the family of the household. So when and she you, didn't leave me. Yeah, that was that, <laughs> that's a very important piece. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So then you transitioned from Cincinnati to Palm Beach. How did that happen? Yeah, that was an interesting. Oh wow, that was so interesting. But if I tell you this, you know, I know that everything has every 
purpose. Everything happened. There's a season, you know, for every purpose under the heavens, according to uh, the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. I believe that God uh, so ordained it that I should be in uh, West Palm. Uh, and here's how he did it. I had become rather burnt out on pastoring. I had worked hard. How many years? I had been 12 years at, at the church there. I loved the church. I loved the people. Uh, it was a healthy church and a thriving church. We hosted a national convention. I was the pastoral host for the city to bring in um, uh, millions of dollars into Cincinnati. Uh, 40,000 people came to the, it was held at the convention center uh, downtown in 1998 at downtown Cincinnati. And um, very few pastors had the ability to be able to host a national convention, a national missionary Baptist convention. Um, and so I was flying high in terms of the notoriety the, the, of what, uh, in the city, people who knew me, knew my church, knew what we were doing. Uh, the church was progressive, uh, and we had just outgrown our church. We, out, we outgrew it. And so um, under my leadership, we said, let's purchase uh, some land. So we had purchased uh, uh, eight acres of land, a quarter of a million dollars. We paid for it, paid it off. And it had to sign the new home of this church. And we were ready to just break ground. The bank had already come to me and said, the money's there for you. You've, you've met all the qualifications. You can break ground. About that time, um, um, uh, uh, Dr. Ken Mahanes, who was passing a church in Dayton, Ohio, had just become the new dean of the School of Religion at Palm Beach Atlantic University. I didn't know him. He didn't know me. But he knew one of my good pastor friends who had pastored in Cincinnati and who had gone to Bible college with me, that Bible college that I started out <laughs> years ago. I'm working on an undergraduate. There weren't many African-American students at this school. I'm working on my undergraduate Bible degree. He's working, this minister, Dr. Robert Smith Jr., is working on his master's degree. And we became friends, our churches. And he ended up leaving to go become a professor at a school called Beeson Divinity in Birmingham, Alabama. Well, this dean was good friends with the dean of my friend's school, and they were having dinner one night. And the dean, the dean who was coming to Palm Beach Atlantic, said, uh, you know, I'm looking to start a new school ministry department in uh, at Palm Beach Atlantic University, they have a religion department, but we're going to make it a school of, of ministry so that we can focus more on ministry and less on the philosophical. And But we need faculty who have both the academic training and the ministry experience, and I need somebody that can— You cover can those me. grounds. Well, my friend looked at him, and my friend said it was only by coincidence that he was at dinner with 
with his dean and this dean that evening. Only that he and he said, "I have a good friend in Cincinnati named Terrell Bird." He said, "I think he would be excellent for your program." And Dr. Mahanes is his name. He wrote the name down. He took my number, got the number, called me, and said, uh, "You know, this is Ken Mahanes. I like." Uh, to come visit you, and I said, for what? <laughs> yeah. Why? Yeah, we said, Why would you come right, 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 right. And so, and so, were you already in Palm Beach then? No, oh, I was still, still in Cincinnati. And uh, I said, why did you get my number? He said, well, your good friend Robert Dave Robert uh, Robert Smith uh, Jr. He uh, he mentioned you and thought that I might uh, ask you about teaching at our university. I said, no, I'm, I'm pastoring. My church is getting ready to go through a building program. We, we've bought land. We're getting ready to break ground. I'm that early. Yeah. We were getting ready to, to, to break ground on a new building. And so he comes, <laughs> Dr. Mahanes comes, visits my church and, uh, doesn't say anything. He leaves, he visits, you know, and he say, he tells me he was going to visit. Well, he left. Well, I said, okay. You know, so he calls that week and he says, oh, I'm sorry I left the church so soon, but it was Mother's Day and I had to go to Dayton, Ohio to be with my mother. He said, but oh, your church is amazing and I want you, I, you're the man for me. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't, I said, I can't do it. I can't do, I can't make that decision. He said, well, wait, I'll give you a call. Here's what I want you to do. He said, let's do this. He said, let me invite you to come and visit the campus. Mm. You and your wife come Take a visit. And, Great trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Visit Palm Beach. And he Beach. waits to the colder months. Oh, and then he this says, guy's got tickets to come to West Palm Beach, you and your wife, because I knew I hadn't, couldn't convince her to come to leave all her friends in Cincinnati. Uh, and, uh, so the same way they tricked you, the same way when you went to New York, they <laughs> yeah, should have realized the right. timing is timing everything. Timing is everything, man. Should have so, never went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and so, uh, it ended up. I think it was like a couple of trips. And I told him once. I said, Doctor Mahane, this is a beautiful place, but I just feel like I, um, I can't do it. And I said, Give me a year. If could you give me? He said, No. He came up. With, he said, After a year, he said, We're going to go on with this this school year. He said, But I'm going to give it a year. He said, I'm going to keep this position open for one year. And he said, and then I'm going to call you back. <laughs> and I think in December, he calls back. <laughs> Smart guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he says, what do you think? And I said, well, I, I, I think I'm ready now. You think you were getting exhausted? That's when the exhaustion was coming from yeah. 12 years of... Yeah, of, of working hard. I had finished a, a doctoral program. Uh, the church, I had building fund program. We had raised this money, quarter of a million dollars to build a church. We had the land. Everybody was ready. And I said, if I stay here I and, and start this building, I will not leave this congregation until I complete the building of this church. So we had, we had the, the building fund of the church had money. We had hundreds of thousands, hundred thousand dollars more in the bank. The property that we set on was worth over a half a million dollars paid for. We had three lots that we were on there in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio. We were five minutes from wow. the, where the Cincinnati Bengals play football. We were, we were right there in Mount uh, Auburn. 
And uh, we had all this property worth a million. And so, and then we had uh, eight acres of land that we were getting ready to build. And a lot of the people, when I said yes, that I was leaving, a lot of my other pastor friends thought I was crazy. They said, You've why would you lost, leave all that? Why would you leave that? I said, because the Lord said so. How were the how old were the kids around that time? Like my I had my uh youngest daughter was a junior in in high school. Uh Tara had already gone into the military. Uh and my oldest daughter was working. She uh in Cincinnati. She was she eventually moved down soon after we uh, actually moved. So okay. So yeah, so so but see, you can't make the church about yourself. The church has always has to be about Christ and His kingdom and His work. So, um, I've I've never uh, had any regrets uh, from moving to Florida. I started out at at the basement at, as an assistant professor. And I'm at a full professor now, but I started out uh, making uh, a lot less than I was making as a pastor in Cincinnati. But I've watched what God can do when you put your trust and faith in him. And so they that wait (laughs) on the Lord. Uh, How was it the transition? So you first got to... You first got into Palm Beach Atlantic University. How was that experience? How was the layout for you when you first got there? Different. <laughs> Uniquely different because... What year uh, was that? That was in 99. Um, I, um, I, I was the first uh, full-time PhD faculty member on Palm Beach Atlantic's uh, faculty staff the first PhD now. And um, while they may have had some adjuncts who had come in to teach. um, So I was, I was it. So I was kind of a pioneer. And so, and most of the other faculty, he saw me as such and would often meet me at the cafeteria to ask me why blacks think like this, (laughs) why they think like that. Because I guess, I guess I became the leading authority since uh, my skin was, yeah, I don't want to bring this. <laughs> but, That's uh, a real thing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And it's okay. But um, I I had to experience um, not racism, but the blind spots that often come with people who have, have not worked across a, um, a diverse or multicultural. You have to really educate them. Yeah, that, that's it. That's it. But even when you first got to Palm Beach Atlantic, the university, how many students? It wasn't a large yeah, it university. Has gr- it has grown. Um, I think we, when I got there, we weren't quite at um, a thousand uh, students, maybe twelve hundred at the most. Um, this academic year, the school is is really moving in the direction of five thousand. Of course, we uh, have a Orlando campus, satellite campus. We. Uh, have a strong online uh, population. Uh, And we have also just recently partnered 
with uh, Florida Mo- Memorial University in Miami and, and HBCU, which I am really excited about what we're working with them on uh, getting their Master of Divinity degrees from Palm Beach Atlantic. So we have this wonderful partnership now with the HBCU, and I'm just, you know, that that's exciting. What is it that you teach? I teach, my area is urban uh, ministry, urban Christian ministries. Um, uh, so my emphasis is on the church. I teach classes. I have one class called Church and Society. I have a church called Urban uh, Justice Issues. I teach. I've also written on the life and thought of Martin Luther King Jr. So I've taught. I teach classes on Dr. King. Um, I, I teach spiritual formation. And then I teach the uh, uh, Exploring the Bible, which is a survey of the Bible class. I teach Christian values, biblical faith. I teach a lot of classes. Um, I think there's another piece that I, I, one of the reasons that our connection um, is your show, Power to Be. Mm-hmm. And the the foundation of it is still educating people in the Christian platform. Um, but you are now this, how can I put it? You are now still promoting and educating people on kingdom culture, Mm -hmm. but now you're presenting it in a digital platform now. Yeah. Like how important is that for you to adjust with today's time and still putting out the message of God? Yeah, no, I think that's great. And, um, I, I really think that uh, podcasts uh, plus that what you're doing here has helped us to kind of elevate our game, so to speak. Okay. Um, and my emphasis, while the theology and ministry is still my ballywick, um, the emphasis that I've been really working on is helping the congregant church people to understand that they have to integrate faith into the whole of their life. And so my emphasis is becoming more on practical ministry, practical living, and living out your faith, and whether you're doing it through your work, through your business, what have you. Uh, So I needed a platform to be able to get that message out. And I think the Power to Be show gives me that platform. Um, And I'm thankful because it's far-reaching. And so it's not limited to one geographical uh, uh, area. It's it's international. So I'm I'm grateful for that. How important do you believe creating a multimedia platform in the ministry how important is that for other leaders to look into that? Um, I think it is essential for this day and time because we have already for we have for some time gone global. You know, Dr. King was talking about a, the world house and, you know, the beloved community in terms of a larger global perspective. So we've already gone global. But now we've got to have the global connectivity. And I think that's what's exciting. Uh, it's exciting for me personally because I've taught in countries like Moldova, 
in Eastern Europe. I've taught in Romania. I've taught students. Jesus Christ, uh, Dr. Bird. You, uh, and you stay dropping bombs. So when, when, when I have students that I've taught from, from Ukraine, for example, uh, because we taught students from the former Soviet bloc countries, when I, when I teach or have taught them, and then they can see me on a podcast and can send a note to me, an inbox saying, I saw you. That's the kind of connectivity that, that I'm talking about. So, um, so, you know, we need to, to promote it and we need to, I, I want to, to be a promoter of this because I think that if we're going to be effective and reaching the world with the gospel, the good news, and helping people to understand how to apply the gospel to their lives and to their work, um, I think they need to get the word out through something like a podcast. So do you believe that, well, a question, how did COVID affect the, the church as far as the people coming in there, yeah. people doing church from home yeah, now, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Oh, it affected it. <laughs> oh, and you know, many, um, many churches, and I've talked to many pastors who are still trying to adjust uh, to this new world order, so to speak. Uh, for, for the most part, churches had to adapt to a kind of a virtual platform uh, in delivering their their Sunday services, their Bible studies. Uh, my church did. We were actually doing uh, FaceTime Live and Instagram Live uh, and then uh, going live to our, our congregations. And we also were doing things, even communion, where we would have a pickup place uh, at the church that they could pick up their, their communion elements. And then we would be able to offer communion virtually. So, um, yeah, it changed the whole dynamic. And what I have discovered is that, like myself and other pastors, some of us, some of this virtual uh, connection, we won't ever change. We won't go back. In other words, we're, we're teaching our Bible studies now virtually, and we're reaching a larger audience. And so we are kind of high flexing uh, so that we can do both. We can do in-house and we can do virtually. Uh, well, the reach is bigger. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, the, the pandemic had created, helped us become creative in our approach to doing ministry. And I think that's good. One of the questions I think I, I want to know and I want to understand from you is what does your legacy look like? You know, um, <laughs> you're asking that while you were still alive. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, good question. I think that, you know, those that you leave become your legacy. Those, your children uh, and their children. Those, How many children? You have three children. I have three daughters, uh, and I have uh, five uh, grandchildren, one deceased. Uh, but I I think that, um, I think he has five. It's <laughs> Julian, Trinity Charity, Grace, 
Ellen, I have six one disease, so I want to never want to forget uh, Evelyn, which she died at ten days of age uh, from congenial heart failure. But anyway, so it's my 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 children and grandchildren. That's my that's my first legacy. The other would be I want my my church. I planted a church since I've been in Florida called Living Word Christian Community, and I want that to be my legacy in terms of how we live the word. And that's why I named it a living word, how we live the word. And so that we're living the word, meaning that we are walking the walk and not just talking the talk. Um, and so uh, I want that to be a legacy. I hope there's a scholarship actually that's named after me at the university at Palm Beach Atlantic university. And uh, it's for uh, minority uh, students, particularly African-American students in the urban uh, community. So if you, we want to encourage people to support that, it's, it's na- under my name, Terrell Bird Scholarship. So uh, that's a legacy. So those are the kinds of things. And hopefully this podcast, Power to Be show, will be a legacy as well. It's definitely a legacy now because yeah, that yeah. content lives on forever. Yeah. Is there a child you believe or a grandchild you believe that will take on pastoral? I don't know. I mean, Tara's already doing evangelist work in ministry. She is doing that. I don't know if there are any that I can see right now that would be in a pastoral uh, uh, role. Um, I I don't know if I wish that on anybody, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, and you don't have to be a pastor to make an impact, and they do ministry. So. Um, you know, I hope that there will be others who will see the value of education uh, because that's a priority. I still believe that there are some doors that can be open. You have to be educated, not necessarily with a diploma, but you have to, ed- if you're not educating with diploma, you better be educating yourself with something, you know? So either learning a trade, learning a skill, constantly developing yourself to know how to sustain your life in different and unique ways, and then using the gift that God has given you, not necessarily to bless yourself, but to bless others. And then he can get glory from that. So So if you had to hire yourself, would you and why? Uh, It depends on for what for. (laughs) You definitely have a couple options, Dr. Bird. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well... I, I would hope that I fit a, a skill set that would be um, seeking to do the best and to, to aim for excellence and uh, to be loyal and also to, uh, to want to give back uh, in some way to to the community so uh, yeah if 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 someone's looking for someone like that i'm your guy i'm their guy last thing i wanted to what made you keep on hustling (laughs) a higher calling um the higher the call the greater the reward well, Dr. Bird, you can end us out with a prayer. You're going to sure. be the first prayer and hustler's testimony, but I know this is what you do after every show. So I, I would love for you to end this conversation, which was a great one. I really appreciate this. Oh, this is inspiring wow. for me. Well, 
but I want to end it. Well, first, I want everybody to log on and watch Power to Be, which is definitely part of our network. Um, the partnership is amazing. We know that the way you impact and the way your team, the how everything comes together is just magical. Mm. Super inspired by it. Um, but I would love for you to say a prayer to close sure. out. And Well, sorry, let me go back. First, log on, share, comment on Power to Be. Please check that out under our podcast space plus network, but they have their own platform. The partnership is amazing. Um, but please end us up with a prayer. Please. Sure. Good. We'd be happy to. Eternal God, we are so grateful for the time that uh, we have spent today with Beethoven and I'm just grateful to be uh, as a part of the hustle <laughs> that um, uh, this space has uh, made room for me. This space has been a blessing to me. So thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, in your word, you have instructed us to work while it is day for the night comes when no one will be able to work. So we are all instructed to hustle, to work. So I pray, oh God, that you would bless us, bless Beethoven and his team, oh God, continue to anoint them and may the power of the blessings and the bounty that can only come from you and will be a blessing to others continue to manifest themselves through this work. We thank you, oh God, for having the time today to do what we did. And we ask, oh God, that those who hear it, those who see it, may be blessed because of it. And so we give thanks in your name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I got to learn how to pray like this. God bless. <laughs> good night. <laughs> and also, don't forget to like and subscribe Hustler's Testimony because right. Matt just gave me that note. Amen. All Thank right. you. Thank you, Beethoven. Thank you, Dr. Bird. Thank you, brother. Woo, it's over. <laughs> it's over. You made it, Dr. Bird. Oh, thank you.